Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police the arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder... Sometimes a criminal becomes more infamous once they are behind bars. On April 14, 1972, a criminal was born who would go on to murder three women. Three women who died because she knew she was born in the wrong body. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Before we begin today's story, I need to give a small caveat. I am going to tell the story in the way that the research presented it chronologically and in the way the subject presented themselves at the time, which may or may not be what is socially acceptable in today's climate. This is the story of Paula Denyer, who was born Paul Charles Denyer on April 14, 1972. Paul, whose family immigrated from New South Wales to Australia and then to Adelaide, always felt out of place, which, of course, led to issues in self-confidence that trickled down into issues with school, significant weight gain, and issues of violence. When he was 11 years old, he slashed the throat of his sister's teddy bear, cut the throat of the family cat, at 13 was arrested for stealing a car, and at 15 assaulted a classmate. Now, instead of looking into the deeper meaning of Paul's actions, his family simply blamed a small head injury he suffered from as an infant when he rolled off a bench saying things like, that's because you fell on your head as a baby, when the teen acted out. His problems continued into adulthood, and after failing the physical to get into the police academy, had issues holding down a job and was fired on seven different occasions. But it was at his job at Safeway's supermarket that he met a woman named Sharon Johnson in 1992, before ultimately being fired for knocking down a woman and child with a line of empty carts. He and Sharon, who by now was the sole breadwinner, moved to Frankston where an idle Paul began breaking into nearby apartments and doing things like slashing engagement photos, rifling through their clothing, and peeping into windows. On one night in February of 1993, a woman named Donna Vanes and her fiancé, Les, came home around 11 p.m., infant in hand, to find the words, Dead Dawn, written in blood, and the dead body of Donna's pet cat, with a photo of bikini-clad women thrown on top of his disemboweled body. Its kittens, whose throats were also slashed, were inside of the baby's bath, and its clothing had been slashed and thrown all over the bloody apartment. The words Donna and Robin were spelled out with shaving cream on the mirror, and some sources say the blood spelled Donna, you're dead. Regardless of what it said, Donna and her family were terrified and moved into her sister Trisha's nearby apartment. When news got out about the horrifying display, Trisha's neighbor, a now 20-year-old Paul Denyer, assured her that Donna would be safe now and that if police did capture Donna's harasser, he would personally take care of it. Donna had no clue that not only had she moved in right next door to her stalker, 
but how incredibly lucky she was that her cat was his only victim that night. Over a seven-week period, starting just a few months after the incident at Donna's home, Paul Denyer began a serial slashing that would take the lives of three young women living in and around Frankston and attack another who was able to escape with her life. The first to have her life taken away was 18-year-old Elizabeth Stevens, who had come to Melbourne in January of 1993 to study in Frankston and live with her aunt and uncle. When she didn't return home on June 11th, her uncle went searching for a few hours before calling the police at around 1 a.m. Her partially nude body was found strangled, stabbed, throat slashed, and with crisscross patterns carved onto her chest in Lloyd Park Reserve. An autopsy would later show that, despite the state of her body, Elizabeth had not been sexually assaulted. Everyone was at a loss, as Elizabeth was known as a kind young woman who didn't have an enemy in the world. So a search for her killer began and police even set up a mannequin at the bus stop where she was last seen in hopes that someone would recognize her and the person she may have last been seen with. As they were still searching for Elizabeth's killer on July 8, 1993, 41-year-old Raza Toth was attacked on her way home by a man who tried to drag her to a nearby nature reserve. She fought for her life as the man pulled out clumps of her hair and she bit his finger down to the bone and was eventually able to stop a passing car and ride off to safety. She, of course, called police, who found nothing but, on that same evening, 22-year-old Debbie Freem, a woman who gave birth just 12 days before, went missing after a drive to pick up a bottle of milk. Her body was found four days later in a farmer's paddock, having been stabbed in the neck, head, chest, and arms at least 24 times before being strangled. She, like Elizabeth, had not been sexually assaulted. Now, police were certain that the man who killed Elizabeth and Debbie was the same man who almost killed Raza, but the problem was they had no evidence at any of the scenes that could lead to an arrest. So they did the only thing they could think of to make the women feel safe, place a warning to keep all women indoors and off the streets once the sun went down. Real estate plummeted, women stayed at home, help centers gave advice on what to do if an attack happened, and the newspapers gave daily updates on the budding serial killer that seemed to be living amongst them in their small town. As the police worked with no physical evidence, they heard a witness report that recalled a car matching the description of Debbie Freem's was seen driving erratically with its high beams on. Her car was later located and found evidence of Debbie's blood inside, as well as a dent that, more than likely, came from when her murderer was driving her car. They also had a vague description of the attacker that came from Ross Atoth, who said he was a young man, probably his late teens, early 20s, round face and blue eyes. The profile was released, but before anyone got close to finding the killer, a third victim was taken. On July 30th, 17-year-old Natalie Russell was attacked on her bike home from John Paul College in broad daylight. She was reported missing around 8 p.m., and pretty soon after the search began, the police found her body. She'd been dragged from her usual bike path into a large hole in the nearby fence. She put up a pretty good fight, but was no match for her much larger attacker. But because of this fight, the police found their first trace of DNA, something missing from all of the other attacks. 
Not only that, but a postal worker driving nearby saw a suspicious yellow Toyota Corona that had a man using binoculars inside to watch Natalie go down the path alone. As she stopped to call the police about the man, he ran down that same path. The police responded and, noticing the car had no number plates, began knocking on nearby doors to try and find out who the car belonged to. They had to leave on another call, after which the man returned to the Toyota and drove off. Police used this information to find three holes cut in the fence, one of which had blood traces that were in addition to the skin and hair samples taken from Natalie's body. With the help of the call, the car, and the registration number, police traced that Toyota to a similar witness report in the case of Debbie Freem's murder, and finally, to Paul Charles Denyer. Police showed up at his apartment on July 31st, 1993, only to find that he was not home. So they left a business card with their contact info. They received a call later that day, not from Paul, but from Sharon Johnson. They told her that this was just a routine inquiry. And within 10 minutes of her call, they were surrounding his apartment where they officially arrested him and took him in for questioning. Where after failing to explain why he was in the vicinity of each of the murders, had his DNA taken. Sure, their request for DNA meant that they had enough evidence against him. The next day, Paul admitted to all three murders, the attack on Rasa and the harassment of Donna. Paul Denyer was charged with three counts of murder and one of abduction, all of which he pled guilty to and was sentenced to life imprisonment on December 20th, 1993. When examined by a psychologist, he was diagnosed with sadistic personality disorder. Now, here is where Paul's life story changes a bit. In 2003, Paul wrote something later referred to as the Paul Denyer Letters, stating that he was now identifying as Paula Denyers. According to the letters, she'd been plagued with gender dysmorphia since she was a child, and that they were the reasons she sought revenge on women. A letter in 2004 stated, I commit these disgusting crimes not because I ever hated womankind, but because I have never really felt that I was a male. Behind bars, Paula began wearing women's clothing and makeup, which initially caused issues as it was against prison orders, and medical specialists evaluated her to help determine if she should receive the gender reassignment surgery she was now requesting. They rejected the idea, which has, in turn, caused a massive debate on prisoners' rights. Many support her transition and believe that, by denying her desire to transition, they are placing Paula in danger, that she should be taken as seriously as anyone else needing to transition. Others believe she is taking advantage of the prison system and think that this is a, quote, stunt. Paula will be eligible for parole in 2023 and has since been refused permission to wear makeup, receive the reassignment surgery, or legally alter her name. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on April 15th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.